0: record for announcement what you had seven different things to highlight and you did it all within like two minutes that's that's incredible I I would recite back all the different things you said but I don't think I can there was a lot there but um, guys check out the link tree if you need any follow-up info on all that there's a lot of good stuff happening so as you've heard Brian speak about This is the Sunday that we sort of chose to kind of remember what happened five years ago um, in those days of when the fire hit and right afterwards, you know, November 8th falls on the Wednesday. So it was like, do we choose the Sunday before or the Sunday after? We chose the Sunday before and I uh, have lots of thoughts, but I'll share this with you. It's something that I preached about not too long ago. One of my most enduring memories is the Sunday after the fire, when our congregation in paradise, most of them had lost their homes. Everyone was scattered to the four winds, afraid, uncertain of the future. And yet we opened up the church, our old meeting place downtown on 5th and Normal. No, 7th and Normal. (laughs) It's been a while. And we had folks from Vespers and folks from Ridge Paradise that just filled that building to the brim. And we just prayed and we sang and we wept together. Some people that hadn't seen each other since the fire hugged and embraced not knowing where everybody was. It was a really raw time but a really amazing time to point one another to the faithfulness of God. And that's why we've included our our Chico congregation in this, because many of you guys that attend at Vespers now lost your homes in the Paradise Fire, and then many of the rest of you were a key part of embracing, taking people into your house in Chico, helping provide for folks. This brought us together, and we go hand in hand through these moments of remembrance. And so that's why we're inviting you into, again, remembering the pain and the loss of what happened five years ago, but also the goodness of God and his faithfulness. So with that being said, I think I want to jump right into the scripture for today, which is First Kings 19, 1 through 9. We are carrying on in our study on the, first, uh, the book of 1 Kings and, and what we see about the prophet Elijah in it. And the last few weeks, we've seen amazing things. God show up in power on Mount Carmel. Elijah praying to the Lord to bring rain after three years of drought, and he does. And then even where we ended last week, we saw Elijah the prophet running faster than the chariot carrying King Ahab to get to the gates of the city. And where we start reading tonight picks up with the next part of the story. So I'm going to ask if you would stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. And I'll read this out loud for us. 1 Kings nineteen one through 9. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is God's word. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in these next few moments would be pleasing in your sight. We ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Man, Thanks for standing. You guys go ahead and be seated. I was recalling this week as we thought back on the five-year remembrance of the campfire, I was recalling what sermon series we were doing in the days leading up to that. We were actually in a sermon series on the parables of Jesus, which some of you who have been around a little bit might remember. We were not looking at all the parables of Jesus, but we selected most of them To kind of study as a congregation together and there was one in particular that i preached i think it was june of that year and it was from the gospel of luke and it's the parable that's often kind of titled the parable of the rich man and lazarus you guys familiar with that one some of y'all i see a few nods well don't worry if you're not familiar i'll give you just the very like the the, the cliff notes of cliff notes version of it, okay? The, cliff, the cliffiest notes. So Jesus tells this story about um, a poor man named Lazarus. Lazarus. He was a beggar outside the gate of this rich man. Lazarus was destitute. He was uh, in great need. And yet the rich man who lived in the home that Lazarus sat outside of, he never lifted a finger to help Lazarus. He never used the resources God had given him to take care of this man in need or at least to help him in some way. And so Jesus tells us that when these two men died, that their positions actually were reversed in the afterlife. That Lazarus, who had been poor and impoverished in life, he now finds himself in paradise in what the, the parable describes it, the bosom of Abraham, it says. And on the other hand, the rich man who had refused to help Lazarus finds himself in Hades, in torment. Now, there's a lot of dialogue in this parable, and I'm not going to tell you all of it. What I do want to highlight is this one thing that happens. The rich man has a request. He actually has multiple requests. But the main one I want you to, to realize is this. He says, okay, I don't want my brothers to end up in this terrible state that I'm in, so please, 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 Lord, send a messenger back from the dead to warn them, to to get their attention, to say, don't make the same mistakes I did and wind up here in Hades with me. And, you know, it's actually Abraham in the parable that Jesus tells, who's sort of the spokesman for heaven, and Abraham says, your brothers have the law and the prophets, that is the word of God. They have the promises of the Lord. They have all they need to know who he is and how to follow him in faith. And the rich man says, no, 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 no. That, that's not enough. Everybody has that. What these guys really need to get their attention, what they really need to shake them and make them know that this is serious, is they need a miracle. They need somebody coming back from the dead. To show them the error of their ways and to warn them against making the same mistakes that I have. And the response he gets from Abraham again is striking. Abraham says, if they haven't believed what God has said in his word, then they could see a man rise from the dead and still refuse to believe. They could see a hundred men rise from the dead and still refuse to believe. They could see miracle upon miracle upon miracle. If this hasn't gotten to their heart, signs and wonders won't either. Hardened hearts, those that are resistant to the things of God, we think that what's really needed is proof, is evidence, is miracles to get people's attention. But the reality is... If a heart that is hard against the things of God has refused to hear and believe his gospel, they could see the most amazing things in the world and still write it off. This uh, truth we see repeated in the Bible over and over and over again, but one of the places where we see it the most clearly is in the text that we read tonight. Because we have a character who so far has been kind of on the periphery of first kings but now is sort of front and center her name is queen jezebel joy merrill is not here tonight if she was she would go ooh <laughs> oh joy i love she's my peanut gallery <laughs> queen jezebel we've known her influence in israel but now she takes center stage as the main antagonist in the story because she's the one that hears about all that the prophet Elijah has done, or let me correct that, all that God has done through the prophet Elijah. And she says, Elijah, I'm going to get you. I'm coming after you. And I've heard that you killed the prophets of Baal. I'm going to do the same to you, so help me, God. It's the reason why Elijah at least initially takes off. It says that he, he runs in fear flight because Jezebel has made this threat against him but let's back up a little bit look at verse one Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done so her threat is in response to hearing about all that Elijah had done and what had he done miracle upon miracle proof upon proof evidence upon evidence that the God of Israel was the one true God and all the gods of the Canaanites were false idols. That's what Elijah had shown in his ministry, and that's what makes her respond with saying, I'm going to kill that guy. Just imagine, it says that Ahab, he comes back to Jezreel, he goes in, he tells his queen what has happened. And I I like to envision the scene kind of like, you know, your normal just, you know, husband coming home from work that day. How was your day, honey? Well, lot's happened the last few days, Jezebel. Elijah appeared out of nowhere. He challenged your favorite priest, the priest of Baal, to this contest. 400 of them. And he mopped the floor with them. Then they all were killed for being people that led Israel astray. And then, you know how it hasn't rained in like three years? All Elijah did was pray very briefly to the Lord, and he opened the heavens and made it rain. He also opened the heavens and made a pillar of fire fall and consume this altar that he had prepared. And to top it off, he just ran 17 miles from Mount Carmel faster than I could get here in my chariot. It's crazy so Jezebel hears all of that and her response is astounding because you know we as readers or even just reasonable human beings say if you see and hear all of that what other response is there other than to fall on your face in repentance and faith and say have mercy on me lord I'm turning away from false idols and I'm giving my life to the one true God that's the only reasonable response right but it's not the response that she has instead she hears all that god had done to prove himself and somehow some way she doubles down on her resistance and she says that prophet elijah i'm going to kill him if it's the last thing i do wow once again here's the principle A hardened heart that's resistant to the things of God isn't convinced by reasonable argument alone or miracles alone or wisdom alone or supernatural experiences alone. God might use those things, but they're never sufficient in themselves to bring anyone to faith. What is required is the Lord in his mercy sending the Holy Spirit to open eyes, to open ears, and to soften hearts. So that we might believe. There's two takeaways that I want to kind of practically sort of put this into play for us as a church. Here's the first one. It comes when, when you as a believer in Jesus are, are talking about your faith with other people. And you're talking about the gospel. You know, it's something that we touched on in our sermon series on evangelism earlier this year, but it bears repeating that the most significant, important thing that we do when it comes to sharing our faith in Jesus with others is we pray for them. Play, that, that sermon series, we tried to give you guys practical equipment. Uh, Equipment isn't the right word. But equip you with practical things about how to speak confidently about what the gospel is and how to share it with others. But we started with the importance of prayer. The importance of saying, Lord, unless you move here, nothing's going to happen. I can't convince somebody. I can't show somebody the, the glories of the gospel. You have to open their eyes to it. And it's very humbling to say that because what that means is that you could be more eloquent than Billy Graham ever dreamed of. You could be more of a miracle worker than the prophet Elijah ever got close to. You could just be just amazing things happening when you show up, God doing miracles through you. But none of it will matter unless the Lord is opening hearts and eyes and minds to believe we are completely dependent upon him to move when it comes to us being sensitive to the gospel or anybody else so that's one takeaway the second one though is this i want to think about it not so much when it comes to sharing the faith with those excuse me the faith with those who don't believe but rather what about when we're struggling when we find ourselves in a season of doubt or despair, or lack of confidence in the things of God. Have you ever been in one of those seasons? Where you say, I, I've given my life to Jesus, I've followed him for 20 years, but today, I'm not sure if this is real. I'm not sure what any of this has to say about real life. In those seasons of doubt... Sometimes we trick ourselves into thinking that what we really need is a great sign and wonder or miracle, right? But I'll just speak for myself. God, what will really make me certain and confident in you is if you rend the heavens and there's a giant hand that reaches down and, you know, lifts up my car. I don't, I'm just shooting from the hip here. But something miraculous, something that I can't explain away, something that would prove to me definitively that this gospel is real and true. A sign, a wonder, a miracle would prove it. But it wouldn't. Because what this is showing us is that when we have a doubting heart, a skeptical heart, we could see the most amazing thing in the world. And our doubting heart would still find a way to write it off dismiss it or to explain it away. To say it was just a hallucination or a dream or find some explanation to put it on something other than God showing up. That's what a hard, doubting heart does. What we need In those seasons of doubt and despair, more than signs and wonders or miracles are an encounter with God, speaking primarily in the word he's given us and in his gospel. Because if this is not softening my heart to see and to hear him, signs and wonders aren't going to do much better. As much as I convince myself otherwise. These are... Difficult truths to kind of hang on to. It's one thing to know them in theory. It's another thing to see them actually in practice. And perhaps that's the reason that Elijah is so fearful and despairing in our text. Because he had seen up close and personal that the most amazing things in the world could happen and people still won't believe. I mean, imagine. Maybe his expectation was that when he arrived at Jezreel, like we saw him doing last week, that there was about to be a parade, a celebration, this excitement of we are returning to the worship of the God of Israel. Jezebel and Ahab have repented. They've said, we want to faithfully follow the Lord. There's about to be revival in the land. Maybe that's what he was expecting. I mean, why not? If you had just seen fire fall from heaven and devour the altar or the rain come after three years, you'd probably be like, how could anyone not follow God after this? But the reception he gets is the opposite. Jezebel vowing to kill him. (laughs) So he's seeing up close and personal the difference between a hard heart that He's open to the things of God versus one that sees all the proof you could imagine and still rejects him. And I, I, you know, it says in the text that the first thing he did is he ran away because he was afraid. Yeah, I get it. If he's expecting in some way, shape, or form that he's going to be welcomed in as the prophet of the Lord, and now he's like, actually, Jezebel wants to kill you. Yeah, that, that crazy sort of 180 turn see why he's on the run but notice his fearful flight doesn't seem to last for the entirety of the text that we read because by the time that he gets to the city of Beersheba and he leaves his servant behind now it seems that he's feeling another emotion the emotion of despair I'm going to read for you in verse four it says this But Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah is asking to die, just days removed from being at the center of one of the most amazing acts of God the world has ever seen. And he's done. Whoa. How do you go from like being on the mountaintop literally and figuratively like he was to being in this place where he is just saying, I'm out of here. I want to die. This mix of fear and disillusionment and despair has brought him to this place. That is way different than what we've seen anything that he's been through up until now. Now, many of the resources I was reading this week um, really jumped on this moment in Elijah's life to make a moral judgment about what he's doing here. And, and I saw that people seem to fall either in one or two camps. So some folks are so wrapped up in Elijah being this, this hero that we're meant to emulate that they cannot admit that this is a moment in his life that is not good that he ran away, that he was maybe even we could say a coward. And they need him to be a hero, so they're like, no, 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 that can't be what's going on. And there's all these twisty, windy interpretations to try to like bail him out, so to speak. But then there's other folks that read the text and they almost like delight in his failure because they know, and I've mentioned to you this, this to you guys before, that sometimes we make this mistake reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, of thinking that the stories are about these great human heroes that were meant to live up to their courage or their boldness or their zeal. And so these folks are like, aha, look at Elijah, this knucklehead that totally messed it up. What a loser. He was just on the mountain doing amazing things, and now he's laying under a tree wanting to die, You know, just goes to show you again that we are all fallen human beings, even the quote-unquote heroes of the Bible. God is the hero of this text. And to that I'd say amen. God is the hero of this text. And yet, neither the good Elijah or the bad Elijah is satisfactory to me when I read this passage. I don't immediately look at him when I read about what he did here and say, oh, what was right or wrong about this? Actually, the thing that I think of more than anything else is that Elijah is having this incredibly human moment here. A moment that is just characteristic of what it means to be a human being living in a fallen, broken world and all the ups and downs and joys and sorrows that that brings with it. I... Shared this up in paradise this morning. um, And I think some of you guys know this. And some of you guys have never heard this before. Um, The days before the fire. Three months before the fire, actually, specifically. I actually, I had to take a leave of absence from church. Because I found myself in a place of such deep depression and despair that I could hardly get out of bed. And September... Of that year, 2018, our our elders came in at Ridge Paradise up on the ridge and in Vespers Chico and shared with you guys that I was taking an indefinite leave of absence. And truthfully, I didn't know if I would ever be back to pastor again. I was in such a deep, dark place. And when I look back at that time, God taught me a lot. Taught me a a lot about some incorrect thinking, I think, that I had about the Lord and about my faith. He taught me a lot about what it means to trust in him in really dark days. But I don't necessarily look back on that time and immediately think that there was something right or wrong that I did that led me there. I really feel like this was something that came on me without much rhyme or reason and was more just a product of me living in a broken world that's not the way it's supposed to be after the fall. And so I, I read this passage about Elijah coming under this tree and basically saying, Lord, I just want to die. I'm no different than my fathers. I've made no change in Israel's faith and life. I can't do it anymore. And I don't immediately think about, like, what good is here? Like, what is he doing right? Or what is he doing wrong? Or what if he should have done differently? I look at this and I say, I've been there. I've felt that. And I know many of you have too. Some of you all felt it in those days immediately after the fire in paradise. Again, it's it's one of these things where it's not about his good decisions or bad decisions that led him there. Maybe there's an element of truth there, but it's just simply about him being a human and experiencing what we all do at some point, of the beautifulness of life and the terribleness of life, and how oftentimes it goes side by side. And sometimes it brings us to a despair, a darkness like this. However, you choose to view this passage, whether it's you want to view Elijah as the hero, you want to view him as the total mess up or if you want to view him like I'm suggesting to you just as this human experiencing very human things here's the biggest takeaway I want you to have regardless of what your interpretation is God treats him in an incredible way in the darkest point of his life let me read it for you verse 5 He lay down and he slept under a broom tree, hoping to die, remember? And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. God cared for him at his darkest moment. And it struck me this week, I was reading article after article about how stupid and cowardly and what a failure Elijah was. And I was like, you know what? God treats Elijah way better than any of these scholars do. (laughs) Thank God for that, right? He sees his fearful, fleeing, depressed prophet and he doesn't reject him. He doesn't say, man, I chose the wrong prophet. This guy doesn't have what it takes. He's got no grit. He's got no heart. He's got no metal. No. God responds to him with tenderness and compassion and love. Now, I read for you the beginning of how he does that. But let's see the whole picture. So what we just read is he shows up while Elijah is sleeping, hoping to die. And the Lord has baked him a cake on hot stones. You know, I said this up in paradise this morning, probably not a birthday cake, not a sweet cake, just some bread. But it's this cake, and it's this jar of water, and I'm so glad it uses the language cake, because it probably triggers in your head a connection, at least I hope so. Just a few chapters before this, we saw a similar cake being given to Elijah, this time by the widow of Zarephath. And I love that the Bible draws that connection and saying, you know what? God provides for Elijah at his strongest moment when he was the prophet that we could all emulate and look up to. He also provides for Elijah at his weakest moment. In both places, God is saying, I care for you. More than that, the angel of the Lord After Elijah eats, he goes back to sleep again. Now he wakes him up and he says, hey, buddy, you need to eat and drink again because you're about to go on a journey. I'm about to send you to Mount Horeb. That is Mount Sinai. It's another name for Mount Sinai. To the mountain of the Lord. And so the angel of the Lord takes this rudderless, directionless prophet and he gives him purpose. He gives him a path to walk on and he prepares him for that journey. And finally, in my opinion, the most important of all, there's verse 9. Elijah came to a cave on the mountain and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I know it's very easy to read that question as an accusation. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Shouldn't you be up in the northern part of the kingdom fighting the battles that I've given you, calling people to repentance and faith? But remember, the angel of the Lord had sent Elijah to this very place. He wasn't there by accident. He wasn't there because he was running. He was directed there by the angel. So God knows he's coming. God wants him to be here. This question is not an accusatory, what are you doing here? Instead. It's voiced like this. Elijah, tell me what you're doing here. Why are you afraid? Why are you scared? Pour out your heart to me. Tell me what's going on. Bear the deepest recesses of your soul. I want to hear your frustrations. I want to hear your confusion. I want to hear your insecurities. I want you to pour it out before me. I can hear it. God is inviting him to lay it all out. To not just have the cleaned up language of the Sunday school answers, but to pour out his heart and his soul. And what we'll see next week is that Elijah actually does that. Precisely because God had invited him to. So for this week, maybe we could even say cowardly fleeing prophet, the Lord doesn't reject him. Instead, he feeds him, he prepares him and gives him purpose, and he invites him to speak all that's on his heart, saying, I want to know. That's our God. That's your God. Tell me, it's just not incredible to you that over the course of one and a half chapters, we've seen our God Just bust the sky open in power and might. We've seen him bring serious judgment on sin because he is a holy, holy, holy God. But we have also seen him reach out to weak people with tenderness and compassion and care. What other God is like that? This is your God. And in the face of Jesus Christ, you see those things. I I wish I would have thought of this early enough in the week to tell Kevin, but it was only on Friday that it even kind of clicked for me. But I felt like the lyrics of that song, He Will Hold Me Fast, just fit with this so perfectly. Whenever I sing that song, I think I'm going to think of Elijah. A guy that was on the run, a guy that had given up, but God held. When I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises will last. Even when my love is often cold, he will hold me fast. That's what he did for Elijah. That's what he does for you as his people. Let's pray and then we'll head to the table together. Father, I pray that the things that you're speaking to us through these this word, Lord, would lodge deep in our hearts and would stay there, especially we'd stay there in times where we're doubting and uncertain, they'd stay there in times where we're fearful and in despair, Lord, so many human emotions were talked about in this scripture and yet they are all met by you, a gracious, tender, compassionate God inviting us deep. We love you, and we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.